Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The news this week has been explicit, both in language and in what the language reveals. We're discussing the president's comments on immigration and the United States' role in the world. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, everybody. It's a little crazy around these parts. We have no school, lots and lots of snow where both of us live. So maybe give a little grace if there's some background noise in both of our recordings this week because I got kids jumping around and snow falling. They're all hyped up on snow cream and hot chocolate. So we're doing the best we can in these parts. Just P.S. To be clear, we have lots of snow by Kentucky standards which I understand is not lots of snow by lots of your standards. But here it is like rush for the bread and milk, mm-hmm. find something mm-hmm. for the children to do. Every time I open the door, my dog looks at me like, I don't want any part of that. So I had to drag Cookie out the door, literally like, come on. Everybody's getting a little bit stir crazy. But we're doing the best we can, and we're up in our social media game too. I'm, that's what I'm doing in my snow days. So check us out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. 
We also, I just realized, have crossed the 2 million download mark. So we want to say thank you to everybody for that. Thank you for sharing Pantsuit Politics. We are really trying to grow the reach of the show this year, and we appreciate all of your iTunes ratings and reviews and sharing about Pantsuit Politics on social media and in person with your friends. You guys are the best ambassadors for the show, and we're just so thankful. Mm -hmm. Lots to talk about today. Our home state is our Mm. first topic. Beloved home state. Our beloved home state, yes. We're sitting here in Kentucky, which has become the first state to receive a waiver on Medicaid to add a work requirement. And I thought I would quickly, Sarah, if it's okay with you, go through some of the facts of that so that we all can level set on what we're talking about. Kentucky expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act provisions that were designed to provide health insurance to the working poor. So the Medicaid expansion allowed people who are making a little over $16,000 a year to go on Medicaid. Those people previously would not have qualified. That added about 480,000 people to Medicaid in Kentucky. We have a total of 1.4 million people, which is about 30% of our total population on Medicaid. So just under half a million people added under the expansion. Our Medicaid plan costs about $10 billion, and the federal government pays 80% of that cost. Governor Bevin and his staff have been thinking about this for a very long time. About 16 months ago, the first proposal of the Medicaid overhaul was submitted uh, to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. That is a branch of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services that's responsible for administering Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP, along with the health insurance marketplace under the Affordable Care Act. This week, the program was approved in Kentucky. I want to note something that has been noted in a bunch of more left-leaning sources and not so much in right-leaning sources. A CMS official, Seema Verna, actually helped design Kentucky's Medicaid waiver as a consultant before she went to work for CMS. She recused herself from the review process, but she has helped Kentucky, Indiana, and several other states actually write these requirements and is now sitting at the agency that has to approve requests. So it's called a waiver because Kentucky is essentially saying, I know what Medicaid law says, but we want to do something different. Is that okay? And CMS has generally said that the Trump administration is inclined to grant waivers for work requirements on Medicaid. So that's kind of the process aspect. Here's what's in it. You are required, if you are on Medicaid, to work 80 hours a month, and that work requirement can mean a job, job training, education, volunteering, or other qualified, quote, community engagement. And then there are exceptions to that requirement. So children, former foster care children, pregnant women, senior citizens, and primary caretakers for children and disabled adults are exempt. Full-time students are exempt. And people who are, this is a quote, and I really hate this term, so I just want to let you know that it's not my term, the medically frail are exempt. There are concerns by analysts that that medically frail provision will be interpreted quite narrowly. So that's one of the criticisms of the program that is out there right now. The program also cuts dental and vision coverage completely for some adults, but they can regain that coverage by completing health-related activities, which includes things like smoking cessation programs, weight management courses, disease management courses, and volunteer work. 
You have to pay some premiums under this program between $1 and $15 a month, depending on your income level. And if you are above the poverty level, which is $12,000 annually, and you don't pay the premiums in 60 days, you lose coverage and you aren't eligible to get it again for six months. The non-emergency transportation benefit has been eliminated. That's a benefit that helps people get to the doctor or hospital for appointments in non-emergent situations. And this ends a presumption of retroactive eligibility. So it used to be that Medicaid would cover three months before you sign up for coverage after being hospitalized, and that is ended under this program. So the Bevan administration says that a lot of these provisions are designed to be more like coverage available on the open market. So here are my thoughts. I'm trying to be articulate and not overly emotional, as I have been criticized for being recently. Look, so I am in employer-based healthcare, in which there are programs that promote and encourage workers totally of their choice to take better care of themselves. I'm not opposed to such programs if they are by choice. I think it's good to motivate people. I think we know a lot about behavior modification. We know a lot about um, why people make choices about their health, why maybe choices is not even the right word. Unfortunately, this program doesn't seem to acknowledge any of that. It seems to be operating from the mindset of people can work and they don't, and they just sit around collecting government benefits, which really bugs me. But if we're going to operate from that... I know a lot of able-bodied citizens collecting Medicare as well. Why don't we go over that after that population as well? People that definitely don't need Medicare, that can afford their own health insurance and collect it or could still be working because people live longer and have healthier lives. So let's just expand this to everybody. If there's a kid who's some sort of savant, maybe we could get them working and trying to pay off their benefits. I don't know. I got. I think that if we're going to take this cynical view of people and their government benefits, just let's just sky's the limit. Let's do this for everybody. Sorry, that wasn't very productive, but this is ridiculous. The first thing I want to say is that I'm glad that Governor Bevan is not seeking to end Kentucky's expansion of Medicaid, which is something that I feared he would do. So I'm glad that we're still making Medicaid available to the working poor. But that's my question. What problem are we trying to solve here? If you don't take the cynical version and you believe, as as I am inclined to, honestly, based on what I know about Governor Bevan, who I have some problems with and I have, a, I have some support for as well, I think that he genuinely believes it when he says that having people participate in society in meaningful ways, having a sense of purpose is very important to lifting people out of poverty. However, most of the people that we're talking about who qualified for this expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act are working some and probably desire to be working 80 hours or more if they are able, as outlined in this program. So what are we trying to solve by doing this? I fear that this adds a ton of bureaucracy and, and that's where I worry. I'm not so worried about people not meeting the work requirement. I think most of the people receiving this benefit will meet that requirement. I'm worried that they won't be able to demonstrate it consistently and that the, the task of overseeing that, the, the administrative cost of dealing with these premium payments, nothing seems efficient about this to me. Nothing seems designed to do anything really helpful to this population. It feels like 
Clintonian welfare reform two decades after we learned that it didn't succeed. I mean, it feels like a play to the base. Let's just say what it is. It feels like a play to the people who um, feel like people exploit the government system and they're pissed about that. And I understand that there are people who exploit the system. I don't interact with them on a daily life, but I, rem- I understand that a lot of people do because of their work or because of their location or because of a lot of reasons. They see people exploiting the system, and that makes them very angry, and I can understand that. Um, but, you know, there's no reason to bring a disproportionate solution to the problem. And we did see that. I mean, I remember – I can't remember which Michael Moore movie – the one that was about health care. He talked about the results of that Clintonian welfare reform, and you'd have people that being, you know, spending hours on a bus to get to minimum wage jobs to prove that they had the work requirement. Or you have people just – I think the reality is what could definitely happen here is people will just go without health care. People will say, and in a poor state from like Kentucky, we don't need that. People will say it's not worth it, like they've done with cash benefits in many, many states. It's not worth it. I can't check. I can't jump through the hoops. Just forget it. I'll just go without. And I think that is very dangerous and very problematic. And while I understand the governor's concerns about the budgetary impact of having so many people on expanded Medicaid, then perhaps the solution is empowering people economically so that they don't need Medicaid. And I don't think this is the way to do it. I don't think forcing the working poor into more and more dire situations is the way to lift broad swaths of Kentucky's population out of poverty. I just don't think this is the solution, I'll be honest. I don't think it's the solution either. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I would have been open to a few years ago before I understood any of what the data has shown regarding welfare reform efforts. It's just divorced from the experience of poverty that we've learned in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to care about what the data says. It's also, to me, you know, so demonstrative of the fact that no one is bringing any new thinking to these problems. Yep. If if this is motivated by the attitude that people just want to live off the government, so let's make it harder, that too is a very expensive path forward. Because the mm-hmm. truth is, some of these provisions, if you don't pay your premium, you're kicked off for six months and, and then you can come back on. What kind of health conditions are people going to come back on with if they've gone untreated oh, so for six months? The non-emergency transportation benefit, that's a very big deal in Kentucky. We have terrible public transit options. In a lot of the state, they're non-existent. And so if we're making it more difficult for people to get routine health care and we're making it more difficult for people to stay on Medicaid, what we're going to end up with is a lot of emergency room treatment. The, The thing is, the cost will get absorbed somewhere. There is an enormous cost in society of having a population that isn't being cared for properly. So if you're just about the dollars and cents, this seems like an incredibly expensive approach to me. But he thinks, Governor Bevin thinks, this is new thinking. He thinks he's bringing all this revolutionary thinking to the table. And where a lot of this emergency room cost is going to be absorbed is by the regular health care bills that you and I pay. And what does he care? That doesn't show up on his budgetary balance bill. You know what I mean? Like, he's just trying to make the dollars and cents work in the budget for the state of Kentucky. They're angry about the, you know, additional load that the state will have to pay. I understand that. We're a poor state. If you want to solve – and look, to his, benef- to his credit, and if I'm feeling super full of grace and nuance, I have heard Governor Bevin. He has a vision – 
Kentucky is like the Germany of the United States. We're the place that people come for manufacturing. There have been some big deals that have come to the state of Kentucky. I won't say that he spends all his days trying to screw the poor because I don't believe that. I think he believes he has a solution to the economic problems that face Kentucky. My concern is that it is not comprehensive. And my concern is that while we have glittery eyes for these big economic manufacturing deals, they are not going to lift the very poor and the very sick and the majority of the the poverty-stricken areas in Kentucky. And while I hope that they would, I don't think they will. And I think that we need short-term solutions to the poverty in Kentucky, and we need long-term solutions. And while I appreciate the long-term vision for Kentucky as some manufacturing capital of the United States, that is not going to help in the short term. And I think he thinks this is a short-term solution, but I don't think it is. I think it is just, like you said, it's just going to shift the cost around. It's going to make some people's lives much harder. Some people are just going to give up on the government benefit altogether and go without health care. And we all pay for that in the end. In order to realize that vision, I think, and I agree with you about the sincerity of his vision, in order to realize that vision of Kentucky as a manufacturing center for people currently in poverty, we really need to be investing in health care. We need to be investing Mm -hmm. in drug treatment. We need to be investing in transportation. I don't envy Governor Bevin this task. I think it is admirable that he is trying to deal with our pension crisis while trying to grow the base of revenue in the state and create new jobs Mm -hmm. and opportunities. This is a hard calling. This, to me, seems like, one, a battle not worth fighting right now when you've got all of those other things going on. Two, a play for a voice on a national stage. And I wish that he could get there in a more positive way than this if that is his future. And three, a retread of some really old ideas that ignores everything that we know today. They're just you want you want me to be honest if I'm just being super skeptical. They're still so mad. Bashir got all that press for being such an Obamacare success story and setting up Kentucky as an Obamacare success story. I mean, they said it a million times. I think they're still mad about that. In the same way that Trump wants to dismantle everything Obama did and he takes it as a personal mission, I think Matt Bevin feels the same way about Steve Bashir. If you assume absolute purity of intent, this is still really problematic. I wanted to note that the Kaiser Foundation, which I think is a wonderful source of information of any type on healthcare, says that 80% of adults on Medicaid have someone in their house who is working, and 60% of people on Medicaid are themselves working. And we got a message from our listener, Lisa, that really drives home the circumstances of working jobs that don't pay well. She is um, a preschool teacher who has a college education to teach, and preschool doesn't pay well. Sarah posted an article about this on our social media channels today. She said that her pay didn't come anywhere near covering the family's financial needs, and it was only because they were eligible for Medicaid and had money in savings that they were able to live. They didn't qualify for food stamps because they had saved some money. Without a college degree, she said her coworkers were paid $8 and $9 an hour for teaching preschool. And for her, if her degree were in early childhood education instead of elementary education, she could have made $20 an hour, which is still not great, but better. But because she was certified to teach kindergartners instead of preschoolers, her pay was lower. If you're the governor and you're having this conversation about people needing to work who are on Medicaid, and this is a very common story of people who are on Medicaid, that's, that's just a tough story to sell. 
we will move on now to another unfortunate aspect of the news and what we should start calling the Me Too moment, I guess, of every show since we continue to have to talk about this. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. I mean, I'm okay. I want it to keep going. Don't know how I feel about this new moment. So the website, is it Babe? Is that the yes. right name? Babe posted an article entitled, I went on a date with a season sorry and it turned into the worst night of my life. It was a very detailed and graphic account of um, a young woman who met a season sorry at a uh, sort of red carpet cocktail party, began texting with him, went out to dinner, went back to his apartment. Again, graphic 
step-by-step account of what happened in the apartment, um, which she reports as feeling very violated, as telling him no over and over again, and him not taking that for an answer. She also reports at the end that she texted him afterwards and was like, I wanted you to know how I felt about last night so another girl doesn't leave your apartment crying. And he said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I felt terrible. I read the moment wrong. So she has come out and shared this story. And then, Beth, you had somebody send you an Atlantic piece in response to her story today. Yeah, Dante, a good friend of the show and the composer of our music, uh, sent the Atlantic piece by Kate Flan- Caitlin Flanagan that was basically saying this is illustrative of how young women are angry and very dangerous right now. And perhaps she phrased it like perhaps I'm too old to understand what's happening anymore. But it was very, very critical of the young woman who shared this story and talking about how women of her generation were taught to be strong and to get out of a situation like this if they were uncomfortable. And so lots of backlash online about that. Yeah, I'm skeptical of that, first of all. Full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of Aziz Ansari. I loved him on Parks and Rec. I love his stand-up. I love him and Masters of None. I was a little disappointed when he won for Masters of None that he did not reference the Me Too movement because he definitely, and has been criticized for sort of capitalizing on feminism, claiming himself as an ally, sort of as a, I mean, if I'm being super skeptical, sort of as part of his shtick. But he seems a thoughtful guy. I mean, what I go back to over and over again is, you know, he he has empowered several women within his show. He has a, a writer on his show who I think she won an award. There's an amazing episode about her Thanksgiving. This is a black LGBTQ woman. This, I can't think of her name right now, but it's really beautiful. And so I'm like, man, you know, I struggle because I do think he's put voices out there that are great. I think he said things that are great and insightful about a lot of things. I think my friend Alyssa Wilkinson, who's amazing, she writes for Vox. She wrote a really great piece about why... Woody Allen has not been taken down yet. And she talked about, like, with the accusations from Dylan Farrow, it's just one person as opposed to, like, 150 people like Harvey Weinstein. So I I do think there is cause. There is a spectrum of behavior. Everything that falls under the hashtag MeToo is not equal in proportion or badness. I can't think of another word I want. So I think that this is one story. It is very disturbing. I have no reason to doubt this woman's account at all. She has, you know, accounts to text messages with friends, and it's really bad. He definitely didn't – there was not sufficient communication on his part. Consent should be constant and enthusiastic. He clearly needs an update on that. Do I think he's, like, in the spectrum of Harvey Weinstein? No. I'm encouraged that he seemed very remorseful in their text messages. Like, I hope that this does not – I'm just going to be honest. I don't think this – I hope this does not ruin Aziz Ansari's life and career. I hope that we can all take this as a learning moment. I think that that's really all the the woman seems to be asking for. And Caitlin Flanagan's piece is not helping the situation at all. It's just inflammatory to be inflammatory. So I don't know. I think there are a bunch of things to take apart here. The first is the journalism involved. I don't know that it was a service to the woman at the center of this story who is identified as Grace that she is the only source for this story because it does make it about people questioning her. Well, they do. They said they talked to the people she text messaged, right? 
Right. But that's different from the kind of pieces that have been coming out where they've talked to lots and lots of women who've had lots of experiences. And that's not to say that her experience is any less valid or valuable or important or difficult because there weren't multiple sources. But I do think there is a conversation to have about how these pieces are reported and how this piece was reported. Right. And and whether we're talking about a pattern of behavior or not. Exactly. James, I'm looking at exactly. you, James Franco, P.S. Another thing that I think we need to just reset on a little bit, we don't all need to decide who is the hero and the villain of every story that comes out like this. There was so much of that online today. You you don't have to decide that Aziz Ansari is Harvey Weinstein or that his career should end or that this woman is a rejected liar who put out revenge porn, which is what Caitlin Flanagan basically said about her. You don't have to make that call. Like, we can just take this in and learn what we need to learn from it and move on. I was talking to Chad, my husband, about it today, and I said, you know, I feel like everyone reads these stories, and because they are familiar to us, we take them very personally, and we grossly overreact instead of learning something from it. The truth is, people took this story very personally because more than a lot of the Me Too stories... This is common. You could take out Aziz and Grace and sub in all kinds of names, perhaps your own in one of these roles, and understand why and how this happened. And that's why I think this could be the most important story that's come out so far in a lot of ways. Because just like Sarah talks all the time about how it's less about individual racists and more about systemic racism, Me Too should be less about individual predators and more about a cultural problem that needs to be addressed. Amen. If we would allow that to happen. That's so good. That's so good. That's so good. Just take a pause, everybody. Tweet that. It's so good. If we would allow that to happen, we could accomplish so much more than just holding individuals accountable constantly and arguing about whether the individuals to be held accountable are the men or the women in these stories. This We are hearing each other differently. We are experiencing encounters differently. And that is because of all kinds of messages that we absorb and reframe and recycle constantly. And so... I don't need to judge Aziz Ansari. I mean, I can say, I read this, I was sad because I thought, I don't want Aziz Ansari to be a jerk, but if he's a jerk, I'll live. I don't want to invalidate the pain that this woman went through that I imagine is very real. I can hold both of those simultaneously, but like, I don't want to read the intimate details of people's sexual encounters and decide who's right and who's wrong. I just want to take this and discuss what's going on. Maybe that's what so feels so different to me about this. With the other ones, when there are so many multiple victims and you see a pattern of behavior, what you're asking to look at... Okay, look, I think that the reality is what's happening right now with Me Too and the, the Internet is that the Internet, the royal we, whatever we want to call it, wants us all to act as judge and jury. That's what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Because like so, uh, like um, Lindy West so amazingly put it in her piece, 
because we can't get justice other places. And so we're having to exact it in other ways. So, you know, a lot of people seem to have a problem with that. Great. Great. Then let's talk about how to make the justice system itself more responsive. And we can start from there. So, yeah, I I think that, you know, it's one thing for us to look back at the history of behavior. It's one thing to look at Bill Cosby and be like, you know what? I'm a human being. I can see 50 women and be like, no, I'm done. I'm comfortable sitting in judgment of that. I just am. As an individual, I just am. But like writing up the incredibly intimate details of one night between two people feels very different to me. And I'm not qualified to do that. And I don't really want to be qualified to do that. I don't want to be in the business of doing that. I don't want to start reading the intimate details of every one-night stands Joe Schmo actor or Joe Schmo director went through because, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like a good cultural place for us to be in. It doesn't seem like maybe we're qualified or it's probably, like, just good spiritually for us to do that. And, like, I also think, like, we don't ha- – like you said, we don't have to decide if they're a villain. And also, Aziz Ansari could be both things. He could be a loving son and a great creator and a supportive boss that empowers women and also be really shitty to that girl that night. And maybe another girl, another night. I don't know. Like, that. that's all. Those things are all true. That's true of me. I'm shitty to my kids sometimes. And also I get on this podcast and try to be graceful and nuanced and do good things in other parts of my life. Like, that's just the reality of us, the complexity of human beings. And we have to allow a little bit of that, too. I think mixed up in all of that is the fact that we do treat sex like its own universe. And part of the reason that we keep coming back to the way women and men communicate with one another on this podcast is because I think the way that you behave around sex is probably an extension of the rest of your universe. I tweeted today that if I were going to explain the problem with the scenario to Aziz Ansari, I would find myself using language that I use with my seven-year-old constantly about the way she plays with her two-year-old sister. Do you understand that you had more power in this situation and that gives you a great responsibility? Do you understand that she wants to be with you, but that doesn't mean be with you in every single way that you can imagine? Do you understand that she both likes you and is a little bit afraid of you and can probably feel herself being a little bit afraid of you and then criticizing herself for being a little bit afraid of you and then telling herself that that's crazy, but maybe it's not crazy. Which voice in my head do I listen to while this is going on? Because I'm a woman and I bring all kinds of experiences. Every person who's followed me in a parking lot, every time I've been shouted at on the street, I'm showing up with the entirety of my experiences to this encounter, and I'm sorting through all these things as we talk to each other. These are all skills that we can cultivate in our children very young to respect and listen to each other and listen not just with our ears, but with our eyes and with our hearts, you know, be fully present to the reality of the person across from us. The problem is right now, as I see it, We treat men like they are sexually uncomplicated, as though you press a switch for on and there's no turning it off at that point. And like all the complexity in sexual encounters resides with women, so women must manage all of those complexities. Talk about some emotional labor. Woo! Well, exactly. And I think that all that's being asked by the women who are really driving the Me Too movement is you need to show up and manage this complexity with us. You're mm-hmm. responsible too. In in an encounter like this one, 
that doesn't reach the level I don't personally believe of criminality. And I think that's important to distinguish. I agree with you, Sarah, about the justice system needing to be more responsive. I also think there is a lot of behavior that is fraught, that is harmful, that is imprudent, and that is ultimately wrong that isn't criminal. And we cannot rely on the justice system to solve all of this for us. So to me, if we can bring all of these things together and respect men more as complex human beings coming into a sexual encounter... And at the same time say, now it's on you as well to figure out what's going on in the mind of the woman who's with you. Like, we're not going to get bright lines. I feel like everybody tweeting with me today was like, well, there just aren't any lines. I don't know where the line is anymore. Okay, you're not going to. Because there isn't one. Because we're people and this is messy and it's hard. And I feel like they need to read that amazing email we got from the listener, the male listener. I can't remember his name right now. Ken. Who was like talked about like you just it's yeah, it's a conversation. It's not like you said, it's not a light switch with men or women. You know, sex should be an ongoing conversation. I'm sorry that's hard and complicated. It's the same thing with politically correctness. Yes, I know it's hard and complicated. I had an email with a constituent who said, I feel persecuted as a Christian. And I said, yeah, you know what? I don't feel persecuted. But every time I talk about religion on my podcast, it makes me uncomfortable. But I don't see that as persecution. I see that as the cost of living in a free society. And like the cost of engaging in engaging in intimate relationships with another human being is like it's going to be a little hard and complicated because people are hard and complicated. And like mm-hmm. it's going to you're going to have to constantly ask questions. And sometimes you're going to be real nervous asking the question. But isn't that better than the alternative of not asking the conversation and being Aziz Ansari right now? Bet it is. And with so much love and respect to Condoleezza Rice and Margaret Atwood and the hundred or so powerful women in France who wrote a letter about this, it is not depriving women of agency or infantilizing women to ask men to step up and be responsible for the emotional labor involved in these situations. And I think older women... And, and younger women, there are some younger women doing this. Older women are on my mind because I have been reading these stories through the lens of generational difference because that's how they've been cast a lot, right? This is different from my generation. But that's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. And I, I think it really misses the mark. I think it misses what is being asked by younger women here. I don't think anybody is out to get men, Okay, I don't feel out to get men at all. In fact, every time we get a new story of a man who's done something wrong, I feel a host of emotions, some of which are I'm I'm sad for that guy and his family. Every time I, I can't even look at Georgina Chapman right now. I love Project Runway and I'm so sad for her. And and I can hold on to that along with probably she knew or perhaps she knew about all of this. And what does that mean about her complicity? You know, it's tough. This is all very, very difficult. We need to just be with how difficult it is, though, instead of rushing in to get our pitchforks, depending on which side of the the street we're on. I mean, hi, I'm raising three boys over here. Clearly not out to get men. Clearly I can raise three boys who I love to the ends of the earth and say the future is female. Because I think facing this complexity and this difficultness is beneficial for men, too. Mm -hmm. I feel that to my very core of who I am. And until we make our peace with that, until we decide to let go of deciding which side is right and which side is wrong and who's who's costing us this and who's making it worse for that, like just stop, just stop, 
Stop doing that. And this whole, like, well, my generation, it was like this. What do you think we're going to do? Drag it back to when you were around dating without cell phones? Like, come on, y'all. Like, we're not going back there. So with love and respect, that's not really helpful in moving us forward. And I think the idea of mixed signals, I've seen a lot about mixed signals and bright lines today. Okay, so we're not going to get bright lines. I mean, are we driving or are we dating? I'm sorry. (laughs) I know. And with mixed signals... I I think that that is possible. But again, if you're confused, and I don't mean this to be dismissive or demeaning, like just ask. That's all you have to do. You just have to ask. If you're confused, ask the question, honor the response. That's it. Because that's the thing. Like I heard somebody talking about boundaries the other day, and obviously a lot of this is just about boundaries. And they were like, you know, people want to have boundaries and have everybody love that they're setting boundaries and love the answers. Well, let's all let go of that. When we're bumping up against each other as human beings, especially when we're doing it without our clothes on, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're not always going to like the answer. Again, that's just the reality. You know, some of this, I just think, comes from parenting because that's what parenting is about is like constantly bumping up against people's boundaries if they're not caring that you have them. So maybe that's maybe that's what makes me more comfortable with this is like I hang out with a two-year-old who really does not care about my boundaries at all. You know, it's just there's no easy answers here, everybody. It's just hard and complicated and messy and, you know, but it's worth it, I think, in the end. And I'm not really sure what the other choice is either way. But practice number one, just read the story without getting all emotionally attached to it yourself. You know, I was texting with Dante after he sent us that story, and I said, if we could just get in the habit of personalizing the learning but not the accusation, that would be awesome. Personalize the learning but not the accusation. That's good. Don't let's, – let's end it there. That's an excellent ending point. Everybody tweet that. That's good too. <laughs> so, Sarah, you have a compliment for the other side today. All ready to go. Yes. Actually, I am going to compliment Mia Love. She is the first Haitian-American – to serve in Congress. She's a Republican from Utah. And as a good transition to our next segment, which will be about the president's comments, she said the president's comments were are unkind, divisive, elitist, and fly in the face of our nation's values. This behavior is unacceptable from the leader of our nation. My parents came from one of those countries but proudly took an oath of allegiance to the United States and took on the responsibilities of everything that being a citizen comes with. They never took a thing from our federal government. They worked hard, paid taxes, and rose from nothing to take care of and provide opportunities for their children. They taught their children to do the same. That's the American dream. The president must apologize to both the American people and the nations he so wantonly maligned. I will compliment Senator Durbin, who has been at the center of a firestorm over what the president did and did not say over the past few days and has stood his ground and I think stayed very close to his message that what we need to be talking right now is DACA. We need Mm -hmm. to fix DACA before it expires. There is so much uncertainty in the country. There's so many heartbreaking stories about that uncertainty out there. And I appreciate that Senator Durbin has both said No, this is what he said, and I was there, and this is what happened, and it's wrong. And also, we need to fix DACA today. Let's do it. So we are going to talk about DACA, immigration, and the president's comments in the next section. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement 
and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered mineral filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So let me set the stage. Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, two longtime senators working hard over there, ironing out a detailed and I'm sure very complicated compromise to DACA, which is about to expire, and comprehensive immigration reform. Let's do this, guys. They're ready. They come to the president. The president opens the door and invites in all these immigration hardliners to the table, which that's what I like to do in a hard negotiation is invite the intractable parties to the table. But hey, you know what? He's the expert on the art of the deal. So that's what he did. Invites them to the table. They start discussing the compromise, which um, involves a lot of math. That's what happens in immigration deals. You, you take from this pot, you give to this pot. While they're discussing this, 
They start talking about um, some changes with the amount of people coming from Haiti, at which point he becomes angry and says, why would we let people from shitholes like that? What we need is more people from countries like Norway. Yeah, that's all I got. I want to add before we get too far down the shitholes path (laughs) that... This deal that Graham and Durbin proposed had some very significant provisions, one of which was eliminating the diversity visa lottery. That's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. big change to our immigration policy. There's a lot to think through about what that means about the future direction of our immigration policy. And if President Trump had allowed it, that would have been a very big talking point for him with a lot of his supporters. I think he could have sold. I didn't get the wall, but I got rid of this lottery that I've been bashing for two years. Now, I personally do not view the diversity visa lottery the same way the president does, as we'll probably get into. I think a lottery is is probably the most fair immigration system that we could have and the most humane. But It is a significant provision that I think would have won him a lot of approval from many different corners, especially of the Republican Party. So so it's not I don't want it to sound like Democrats didn't give anything in this process, because that's a very big give. Yeah. What I've thought a lot about with regards to this Incredibly offensive comment. Also important to note, not his first offensive comment on this. He once said that everyone who lived in Haiti had AIDS and that everyone who came over from Nigeria would never want to go back to their quote-unquote huts. So he has said racist, offensive things with regards to this subject before. What happens a lot when he mouths off is we get to talking about American values. So in my more optimistic moment, I was thinking, you know, we talk about this all the time on Pansy Politics. We talk about we need to have a conversation about what's important to us as Americans. And by his insistence on shitting on all of it, he is forcing that conversation. And to that I say thank you, President Trump, because you are forcing us to think very long and carefully about what we really want to be as Americans, what our immigration policy says about our values as Americans. But what it really illustrated to me is his values. And what I'm realizing, you know, we talk about all the time that he is transactional, and that is true. But I think at the end of the day, that transactional outlook to life is only representative of the fact that his only value is greed and money followed closely by loyalty. Those are the only two things that matter to him. And that's what speaks to me loudest from his comments on immigration. Only thing that matters is that you can come here and contribute to our economy and assimilate and everything else doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what you can give us and what you can give me and what we can get from you. And everything else doesn't matter. We're not here to help. We're not here to have values outside of what you can get and what you can give to the country. If that's fine with you, that's a conversation we can have. And I think we need to be careful that we don't lean too far over into lecture porn because the other reality, as as much as we would like to talk about American values as being some sort of untouchable, written in stone, 
like the words on the side of the statue, Liberty, give me your port. We really haven't always represented that. So let's be honest with ourselves that we do have a long history of immigration in this country that was racist, that was pitted one group against the other, that was transactional, that was about what can what can we take from you once you get here. So I don't want to gloss over that. I don't want to become Aaron Sorkin and stand on our high horse and depend, decide that everyone who disagrees with the president is standing firm on some grand moralistic history of immigration in the United States because we are not. That doesn't mean that we can't move forward and get closer and closer to that ideal represented on the Statue of Liberty. But we sure aren't going to get there with a president mouthing off about shitholes, which is bad enough for Americans to listen to. But the thought about people around the world hearing this makes me so sick to my stomach. Well, Americans, many of whom came from those countries and still have relatives in those countries who have adopted children from those countries, there are so many ways in which this is an insult to this, the people who elected the president and to whom he is accountable and who he is supposed to be serving. And I think that he doesn't understand our population well when he mm-hmm. says things like this and fails to understand how many people in our population are impacted, not to mention the foreign policy aspects of saying something like this. We literally are receiving letters from African countries asking whether the president considers their specific countries shitholes or not. And I hope that at a minimum that is prompting some discussion of geography in the White House, uh, since that seems to be a glossed over subject. You know, it's interesting, Sarah, that you talked about greed as a motivator, because the thing that's been on my mind, and this might be a different way of saying the same thing, I heard very early in my life, and it has really stuck with me, that we only are motivated by either fear or love. Every single decision is motivated by one of those two things. And I've been thinking about how, independent of President Trump, a lot of my political philosophy is motivated by fear. When I think about being conservative, most of what I think through is fearing an oppressive government, right? A government that exceeds its place, that usually out of really good intentions. I mean, this is why I'm sort of like the gazpacho of politics. It seems weird. Mm -hmm. Everybody's like, what is this? It's cold. It should be hot. But anyway, (laughs) hopefully if a few people find it an acquired taste. So I usually agree with what legislators are trying to accomplish, especially Democrats. Like, I usually agree with what they're going for, but I worry about the mechanism that they're using to get there, right? Because I think, oh my gosh, is this going to lead to a government out of control? So I make a lot of fear-based decisions in terms of my political philosophy, which is totally inconsistent with how I try to live the rest of my life. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I think as a country... We are making a lot of fear-based decisions around immigration that don't stand up. This is much like the Medicaid discussion we just had. They don't stand up to the data because the data tells us that low-skilled immigration is really good for our economy. It's really important to our economy. I don't know that there's any data that, I mean, welcome if you're from Norway. I have no beef with you. But I don't know of any data that says we need more immigrants from Norway. You know, I don't know of any data that says merit-based immigration is going to be amazing for America. 
there is lots of that data about people who come to the United States in search of new opportunity. There's so much information about immigration as a path to entrepreneurship that low-skilled immigrants coming into the United States eventually become job creators. The small businesses that we extol as Republicans often originate with first-generation Americans, and that's something I think we ought to be proud of and celebrating. So putting our president and what is in his heart, which really concerns me, aside, Mm -hmm. as a country, I think we need to look at, are we going to make immigration decisions out of this sense that our economy is a scarce and finite resource that we got to put our arms around or essentially buy people to come into the United States who can boost those numbers? I don't know. That That's what's been on my mind in terms of values. Well, and I just, there were so many people, you know, I had a couple of people on Facebook that were basically like, well, they are terrible countries. Okay, so I have a couple of responses to that. First of all, so what? What does that have to do with anything? What does the quality of someone's government have to do with their need, desire to come here or their contribution once they are here? Nothing. One has nothing to do with the other one. Two, what I really loved that one of our listeners said is, I think we should start calling these countries previously colonized countries because so often their quote-unquote lack of development is due to the fact that their resources, their labor, was being poured into making first world countries the non-shitholes of the world. So, you know, I just, there's so many disturbing aspects about not only how you see human other fellow human beings on this planet, but how you see the sort of geopolitical makeup of the globe itself that is concerning to me, that we can't see the spark of human dignity that, that resides within all of us, that we all deserve in these, com- in these conversations. Not to mention... We're ready to make character assessments, not only on individuals, but sort of countries as a whole, as if, you know, what do you think people thought about America in the middle of Watergate? Like, things can shift rapidly, as we are currently seeing. So maybe, you know, don't be so quick to judge other people's governments. And as if we're all sort of fully informed policy experts on Haiti, corruption in Haiti, or the current election in South Africa. I mean, come on. Let's not fool ourselves either. Well, the other thing I would add is we are assessing, if, if you're a person who says, well, he just said what everybody was thinking, they are shitholes. Yep. If you're there, we're assessing these countries through our lens. We are not the center of the universe. And not every country should be or desires to be measured the way the United States measures itself. Mm-hmm. As our listeners have demonstrated this week, these are unbelievably beautiful places filled with natural resources. That's why they were colonized. We were taking all the, the good stuff out of them, right? Mm-hmm. Or attempting to. There is also this sense for me that your gross domestic product is your measure of worth. That is an American concept that is not serving us well. I love the United States. 
I am a sucker for American exceptionalism. I don't think that means that we need to say we are the best and better than everybody else. Countries can be great in different ways. You can have a very poor country with people who have a very rich spiritual tradition, sense of community, culture, heritage, historic contribution. Just because we don't recognize that on some Excel spreadsheet doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice when we grade everybody by our yardstick that we need to reexamine anyway. Yeah, seriously. So what are our values when it comes to immigration, Beth? I never want to repeat myself on the podcast. I was saying to Chad earlier today that I always feel like everything I say has to be an original thought, which is so silly and I'm working on it. The thing I always come back to is that to me, what does make America exceptional is that it is a shared experiment that is open to everyone. And so I am not completely an open borders person, but I am very close to that. I do think we need to vet people for safety reasons. And I think that that is a complex problem, especially today. Beyond that, my values are not I don't like the, the concept of merit-based immigration no. because I think that is looking at people's inherent worth through a very myopic lens and one that I'm just not, I don't see anything representative of our values in that. I would rather have the person who comes to this country in search of a better life with his or her family to try to build something here. I think that's what, what created our country and the, what will propel our country into the future. Two things here. First of all, the merit-based thing, it's not only myopic. It's just like, do you can you tell the future? Like, do you know the future? Do you understand every skill set, every educational background, every experience that will be necessary in the next 50 years and the economy we will have in 10 years, 20 years? Because if you are, we might need your expertise in other areas besides immigration. It's so short-sighted. I can barely stand it. Two, if you do not want people depending on the government as an institution to support themselves, then maybe allowing their family to come here so they have another institution to look to to support them and to help them and to prop them up is a good idea. Just a thought, just throwing that out there. I really like the quote, don't quote Ronald Reagan often, but I think the I love the quote somebody posted that was like, you know, I talked to a German. He said, you can never be a German. You can never be a Frenchman. But anybody can be an American. And that's what's beautiful about this country. That's what has always been beautiful about this country, even when we fell so, so short of it. And it's what will continue to be beautiful about this country. We are not for Steve King and Stephen Miller and all their dirty, ugly longing for America to be an ethnicity, it will never be an ethnicity. It is an identity available to everyone. And that is what should be reflected in our immigration system. I think that is the perfect note to wrap up on. We will share some of the images and messages that we received from listeners on our blog throughout the week so that you can experience more directly the countries that the president referred to so dismissively, and hopefully we can continue to celebrate those places around the world as we consider our place within it.
Also, we got pictures of baby penguins. I mean, come on, on the side of the road. I want to live in a place where there are baby penguins on the side of the road. It's just indicative. I always say our people are the best people. Our Ugh. people are the best people. The they messages are. that we've gotten have been amazing. Next up, we will discuss what we've been thinking about outside of politics. Snow, snow, more snow. That's all I'm thinking about. Snow cream. Do you like snow cream? I do. I don't want to think about it right now particularly, but yes, I like snow cream very much. I'm all about the snow cream and the hot chocolate. And I like to really, I like to walk in the snow. I like the crunch. I like the cold air. I particularly like it like twilight. Big snow person. Feeling it like is a little stressful having all these children here pounding up and down the stairs while I'm trying to record my podcast. Yes, it is. But at the same time, I'm reading, I'm in front of a fire, I'm watching movies. I'm feeling it. I'm on, I'm on board with the snow. We're going to let it we're going to let it ride. We're ready to just let it ride with the snow. Well, I wanted to give a little update on my consulting business if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Sarah gave me some homework to develop a class about boundaries. I have completed my homework. I have built a class. I have written some scripts to use in conversations. So excited about the script part. Yeah, she told me you need to be specific about how you do this. And so yeah, because everybody's like, boundaries, you need boundaries. Okay, yes, I get. I hear you. What does that mean? So we are working, working, working to get the manuscript for our book completed this month on schedule. And so this class will start in February. It'll be four weeks long. You can sign up on my website, and I'll put a link in the show notes if you would like to be part of it. I am going to close registration next week because I want to understand how many people are going to be in the class and make sure that I design it with that number of people in mind. But I'm really excited about what I have to share with you on that. And then I wanted to also give an update. Sarah predicted correctly that I would have way more than four people ask for scholarships to my coaching program. I have gotten a flood of messages, all from beautiful, unique people with excellent ideas about how this could enhance their lives. It's just taking me some time to get through those and figure out who I can be of service to best. And so uh, if you submitted a request for a scholarship, you will hear back from me at the beginning of February. I just, we are very focused on our book right now, and I want to do justice to all of the people who wrote to me about that. All right, we will be back tomorrow on The Nuanced Life with a new episode. And on Thursday, we're going to play around with Thursday for a little while. You guys get excited with our end of the week episode for Pantsu Politics. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 